0: Hello, and thank you for listening. Today's guest is Dr. Gail Christopher. Dr. Christopher is the Executive Director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity in the United States. She's based out of Maryland, Washington. Uh, Dr. Gail has a career spanning over 30 years in developing policies that reflect and promote holistic health, diversity, nature, education, compassion, and all-around positivity um, for all. She is showing no signs of slowing down. Uh, We didn't have much time with her today because her schedule is so so full, but um, we're incredibly thankful. Uh, You can find her giving speeches. uh, She gives a TED Talk on YouTube about racial healing. She also holds a doctorate of napropathy, which I had to look that up because I wasn't sure what that was. And it, it, it's very much a dietary, uh, sounds like it's a dietary form of healing. So you can heal the, the, the damages within the body and the ligaments through simple dietary choices, which kind of brings in again, this holistic approach of it's, it's, it's very much our thoughts uh, the food that we put into our body, the environment that we're in, are we around nature? All of these things add up to produce the equation of how we feel. And she talks very much about race and, and how we treat others is a reflection again of how we treat ourselves. So, really, I mean, I, it was just such an honor to have her on. She's so incredibly wise. Um, And one thing that I love about Dr. Gail Christopher is that you can have people out there, you know, writers, academics, and they're very good at telling you what's wrong, but they don't necessarily provide any solutions or alternatives, options, policies that can help combat the problems that we see. And Dr. Gail Christopher is very much in the arena of social change um, she's not just identifying the problem she's working on the solution and that's that's what she's here today to share with us so once again uh I I am so thankful for her being on uh, this call did take place at about 4 a.m. so I, I might sound a little tired but uh, she was she was very gracious and, and patient with me so I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm probably wrong about everything. All right, we have with us Dr. Gail Christopher. Thank you for uh for joining us today. It's uh it's it's been a while in the process. Uh been communicating with with Mia Mathis, and she's been very helpful in this. Um, mm-hmm. So, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Now, I I, I, uh, I wanted to speak to you about this project that you started, racial healing. Um, what can you tell us about about that?
1: Well, thank you for that question. I have to, you know, give credit to the people who preceded me in efforts that were called the healing of racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been many efforts to do that. They are, they're kind of similar to anti-racism efforts. Uh, my focus, which I call RX or prescription racial healing, uh, is I don't consider it anti-racism as much as I consider it pro-understanding um, our interdependence and interconnected dynamic as one human family. I'm very much inspired by Buckminster Fuller, the 20th century architect who says that, you know, we don't change things. Change doesn't happen by attacking existing models. Change happens when we create new models that make the old models obsolete. And so in the Rx racial Healing work, we're really modeling a new model, a new way of relating to one another of developing the skills and capacities that we need to be able to see ourselves reflected in the eyes or the face of the perceived other, to really do away with this antiquated fallacy of a hierarchy of human value that's been used to divide us, to oppress, to brutalize, to do all manner of things that are anathema to the basic human need to honor
0: one another and to connect with one another. I, I love how you bring up anti-racism. So the way I see it, I understand that there's kind of multiculturalism, there's anti-racism, and now there's what, what you're prescribing here is this RX racial healing. What's the difference between between those three? Can you Well, and
1: you could could add to that cultural diversity or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think in in many ways, what we may be talking about is a continuum. Mm. Uh, I know my work in this field began 40 years ago with multicultural education. Right. Multicultural education uh, followed the movement of cultural competence in the sense of it was trying to say to the dominant culture, the white dominate, dominant culture, to honor and respect the various differences in life experience of many diverse groups. And some of that early work was around curriculum development. It was also around uh, when we started as a country, the United States started doing a lot more shifting and shipping of people to other countries. Mm-hmm. The idea of multiculturalism had its roots in corporate America preparing its people to interface effectively within diverse cultures because you know we didn't wanna fall into the trap of the ugly American mm-hmm. that assumed that our way was the right way. And so there was a real movement, a real push to get people to know how to interact within diverse cultures to respect the cultures of the local people. So that's part of the whole multicultural concept. Here in this country, it involved revisiting the history and experiences of diverse people. Uh, Got a lot of pushback from academia and the hierarchy, but that was a movement. The anti-racism movement really, I think, happened sort of around the same time. It really tried to make people more aware of the atrocities and the cruelties and the, the inhumane treatment of indigenous people, the enslavement of African Ameri- Africans in this country and the decades, centuries long, denial of the humanity because of racism. And the idea was to heighten awareness of racism and its, its many, many iterations and forms and to get people to disavow racism And that movement has really reemerged now as a major uh, mantra, if you will, of the protest against the recent brutal killing of of George Floyd. And there's a a couple of books that are pushing the anti-racism frame, all of which is good. I'm not negating the value of any of it, but I do see it as a continuum. The other area that has gained a lot of traction since the civil rights era is what they call cultural diversity and inclusion work, um, or you know, diversity equity and inclusion work, DEI. Uh, again, an attempt to sort of broaden and expand and include others who have been historically excluded. My work is grounded in the, what I consider the undergirding belief system or premise that allows for this exclusion and this oppression. I think that our belief systems drive our behaviors, our belief drives our decision-making. And so even though we've dealt with the consequences and the effects of racism, we've never really eradicated racism itself. The permission, the fundamental belief that allows us to devalue people. And so I focus in this work on changing people's consciousness and understanding and our ability to relate with one another. And this can happen in many ways. Sometimes this shift occurs through marriage, interracial marriage. Sometimes the the shift occurs because you have a teacher or a counselor or a doctor or a physician or someone interacts by through their work with diverse people and they realize this is ridiculous. You know, we are 99.9% the same. Why are we treating each other this way? So there are many routes to this shift in consciousness, the methodology that I have developed, uh, informed by the research of many people, is a a way to, to intentionally accelerate a mass shift in consciousness in terms of our capacity to relate with one another. I believe it's important that we focus on what we're for, what we're creating, that we focus on the desired state. I think we have to go to, through, and beyond the perpetrator-victim dichotomy and get to a co-creating dynamic that is shared by everyone.
0: Yes, I like that. Oh, thank you. Um, Because I I, I was reading Ibram Kendi's work, who is an anti-racist. Like, that's that's the work that he focuses on. And he's uh-huh. talking about how there is no kind of uh, objective truth. It's just a bunch of subjective truths piled on together. And the, the strongest one is what kind of prevails. What, what, what are your thoughts on that, that statement? Well, there?
1: I think that gets a little uh, esoteric. I believe right. that there is a, a foundational truth of our humanity. I believe mm-hmm. that the science of the genome does tell us that we are basically all you know, 99.9% the same, and we trace our lineage, all of us, back to what the geneticists call mitochondrial Eve, which was a woman in Africa. And I believe there is truth to that. Uh, when I talk about the truth, uh, I'm talking about that truth in terms of the opposite of the position or the positing of a racial hierarchy taxonomy that was created. Uh, and, and Ibram Kendi's first book, which is um, stamped from the beginning of, uh, a book award, National Book Award winning book, uh, really a good historical recounting of the root of the ideas of racism and racial hierarchy. So I guess one could say that each person has their own truth. Uh, but the the human body has a way of, for me, serving as the truth, uh, and uh, the science that's associated with that. And, and I, so, I'm very concerned with getting us to honor that, mm-hmm. and to have compassion for ourselves, and to extend that compassion to others, uh, to develop the capacity of empathy or for empathy, to develop. And we, you know, we can't extend compassion to others if we don't have it for ourselves. So. We, we, have to, we have to develop that, that understanding and make that a principle upon which we build our democracy. And democracy, you know, we're young, we're, we're relatively new at this effort, but you do need a lot of people who will value each other and will be willing to make necessary decisions that demonstrate that value. And we haven't quite gotten there as, as a country in America. Now we were for the, we have a national effort that is in play now, which we call Truth, racial healing and transformation. It sort of creates a, um, it embraces the idea of racial healing, but it also acknowledges that we need to look at the past, we need to heal from it, and then we need to build new systems of opportunity in this country that are not based on the historic fallacy of racial hierarchy. And so truth, racial healing and transformation is our adaptation of the truth and reconciliation model that Canada implemented for indigenous people that were taken from the children were taken and and put into boarding schools. Uh, We read that report, we were very inspired by it because it looked at historic wrong. We also looked at Australia, the way they dealt with some effort toward truth and reconciliation and apologies to the Aboriginal people. Most of the truth and reconciliation efforts around the world have been about transitional governance and transitional justice following a major conflict. We, We can't be as informed by those models because ours is a historic continuum, if you will, based on a belief system that's embedded in our laws and our systems and our our economy. So we designed the TRHT or Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation to deal with that historic challenge. It has five basic components. The first one is narrative change. You know that our brains are wired for story. We we remember stories, we believe stories. Stories kind of shape our human experience And so we know it's a a big part of this work is telling a different story about who we are and how we became who we are. And then it's about racial healing. It's about bringing diverse people together to build the skills and the capacities to extend compassion and love and genuine caring for one another. Uh, Then we have to ask ourselves, well, how, if this is a fallacy, how has it been sustained for all these centuries? And we came up with three basic systems for that. One is through separation, the other is through our legal system and the final is through our economy. And so those are the five components of the TRHT framework, narrative change, racial healing, dealing with separation, the law and the economy. And we have communities and organizations and college campuses all across this country that are adapting that framework to their needs within their local communities. And we hope all that will continue to expand and ultimately connect with a national effort that will be uh, authorized by the government.
0: All right. Well, the, it, it just makes so much sense, but for whatever reason, um, people have been othering people as long as history has, has gone on. And this is the next step, as you say, it's a, an evolution. In our understanding, um, and you and earlier you said that if you have a relationship with somebody, it's hard to kind of other them, and that's really what it kind of comes down to is having these conversations. And on your website, I saw that a big part of this was just having a group of people speaking with one another and finding that we are more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm.
1: You're absolutely right. We call them racial healing circles. Right. And the circles are very carefully designed and co-facilitated. So when we're training people to co-facilitate these circles, we make sure they understand that this is not a, end quote, conversation about race, right? right? Right. Uh, Because that tends to take us in another direction. Yes. These are actual experiences. You have to allow a few hours for it. You also have to pre-plan it so that the people in the circle are very diverse from one another. And that's a gift because we we live in very segregated times still, right? And so we can go through our whole lives and never interact with indigenous people or immigrant families or refugee families or African-American or white families. I mean, we have to really be intentional or Latino families. And so when people plan these racial healing circles, a big part of the work is in the pre-work in terms of getting the right people into the room. Now, now that we live in a virtual world where COVID-19 sort of interferes with our coming together in person, we're adapting this methodology into the virtual space. And it may actually allow us to do even more because we can bring more diverse people together, uh, internationally, nationally, So we're we're experimenting with that and we're figuring out how that is. But the people do come together and then they're guided through and given the opportunity to share authentic stories or narratives of their own life in pairs, in dyads. So they feel safe and they feel comfortable doing it. And the the sharing is prompted by um, questions that they're answering. And those questions have been designed to elicit examples of the meeting of basic human needs for self expression And and because of that, you know, you've got this opportunity to be with people who are different. You've got this invitation to share narratives that are authentic, but they are centered around our common humanity. Right. And what, if the room is diverse, what you end up having is 70% of those narratives have to do with the experiences of discrimination and racism because it is so ubiquitous and so when you hear it over and over and over again in many different iterations you come out of that because after they share in dyads they also share in the larger original circle you come out of it having quite you know just having challenged you know your own stories if you will your own narrative about humanity and we found it's it's a very powerful way to Help people to move along the journey, and we're all on a journey. Nobody's right. got this right. We all are biased.
0: Well, and and you you bring up this this kind of schism that's happening that we can just be in this camp and never interact with this other camp, and I do see that kind of politically happening quite with the left and the right. And really, if we just were able to sit down and be able to have a conversation about our basic human needs, we might see, okay, you know what? That person isn't what I think that they are, you know, this this way out there left or this way out there right, whatever it may be. But if we were just able to have these conversations talking about our our needs and, and what we hope to get out of our lives, we might have a much healthier conversation. And I think that that's a great point of it is how, there's a health aspect to this. And how okay. you treat others is a, is a true reflection of how you treat yourself.
1: No question. You said it beautifully, Robert. It, it is absolutely true. Uh, you know, there is a manipulation game that happens when we're talking politics and, and power or perceived power. And so these extreme conversations, you know, one extreme or the other, they're used to to arouse emotion. Uh, to to mobilize people out of fear, uh, but most of us know living in that state creates unnecessary stress. Yes, uh, we just want to live our lives, raise our families, experience some degree of love and and comfort and security, and and have an environment, a country, a democracy that supports all of that. You know, so we have to be mindful, not I think, to buy into either extreme. Mm-hmm. And, and this work is designed to expand the middle, so that the two extremes Thank you. Are smaller, yes. smaller. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's
0: the goal. Well, I, and that's that's what I'm. That's what kind of started me on this uh, road, if you will. Is that I was looking, and I'm I'm only really hearing two very loud voices, and I know that there's a voice in the middle,
1: and mm-hmm.
0: that's where I want to go. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: I like that you said, you know, because I think the other thing that this work reminds us of is that there are different ways of knowing, right, uh, there is knowing because you read it somewhere, but there's also an inner knowing, you know, there's, a, there's an inner sense of, of what feels right, and uh, that leaves you calm and motivated. And, and at peace and you sound like you you listen to that inner knowing that inner voice that tells you oh this doesn't feel right you know so right I think we have to lift that up
0: well and and any way that, that I can help in doing that please let let me know and, and that's what even brought me to you is uh, is is this investigation and hmm, well I don't know if investigation is the right word but trying to understand Right. OK.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, and when I'm when I'm talking with people, because I work as a registered clinical counselor, um, yep. oftentimes you can get into conflict with people because they're trying to figure something out. But when you tell them that you have the same goal as they do, that's mm-hmm. when that's when things start to come together. Like with parents, they'll think yeah. that the school is against them. And yeah. then I say to them, you know, we want the same thing we want. What's best for your child, just like you do, and that's when they realize, okay, we don't need to work in conflict with each other. We can work cooperatively, and that's no, yeah, and that and that's when things start to go in the right direction. But when we're just butting heads, yeah, it's like, are we trying to win this argument, or what's what's the goal here?
1: And there is no greater love, I don't think, than the love of a parent for a child. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, when I started this work, I was vice president at the Kellogg, well, when I crystallized it, I started the work 40 years ago. but mm-hmm. but when I had the resources, the privilege to direct resources to support the work, uh, I was at the Kellogg Foundation. and it's one of the largest philanthropies in the world, but our mission was to help vulnerable children thrive. And we recognized that this issue, of othering, this issue of racial hierarchy and human value hierarchy, it was a systemic, structural, real barrier right. to the health and well being of our nation's children. And if we were going to fulfill our mission, we needed to do everything we could as smartly and efficiently as we could to help eradicate this barrier. So children have an equal opportunity to succeed and to thrive. What uh... What
0: made you, you said 40 years ago, like what brought you into this work?
1: Well, the truth of the matter is, you know, I am a, a licensed holistic health yes. practitioner, a doctor of naturopathy and nephropathy with a specialty in clinical nutrition. Uh, but I was led to that work by the loss of my firstborn child. Um, my daughter died when she was three months old. And it just catapulted me into a journey to try to understand, you know, why did this happen? I discovered uh, this epidemic of infant mortality disproportionately among African-American women. And so I devoted my early career to, to trying to help to prevent needless death of both mothers and babies. And that just sort of walked me into a deeper understanding of racism and its effects. And that was the the catalyst in fact the center that i've developed here in maryland it's called the intianu center for healing in nature and it's named in memory of that daughter uh, because you know if you lose a child you never get over that you know that's just unnatural and um so that's what guided me into the work but i kept real and then you know there was the whole social determinants of health movement that said, you know, what really shapes health is not what happens in the doctor's office after you get sick, but what are the conditions in which you live, which either predispose you to become ill or help you prevent illness, right? From the food to the air, you know, to the stress from the economics or poverty, all these things combined. Are you educated? We know that education makes a huge difference in terms of life expectancy and health. And so we, we have that mo- movement globally and the United States ultimately it took us a while but we embrace the social determinants framework. But here the driver, the hidden shaper, if you will the hidden weaver of the web of social determinants is this idea of racism, of human value hierarchy. Right. And so you can keep patching you know, the holes but if you don't pull that thread ultimately that is weaving this cloth that leads to illness you're going to keep having to do the same thing so you know people talk about going upstream and dealing with the root causes i have discovered personally that this idea of racism both internalized and externalized and projected it's a root cause of illness
0: well I think too that for me, um, the dominant culture in Canada is is, is white, right? So mm-hmm. I I don't know what it's like to be, or growing up I didn't know what it was like to be the other until uh, I went uh, on a trip with my friend to Barbados, and I <laughs> I was the only you know white person there. I was the other. Now my my experiences were very positive, but it made me think okay, now. If I was living in a different society and that and I was trying to make ends meet, I was working there, I was raising my family there, and that's where I was all the time. The feeling of being different and you would be treated different because not everybody, like you say, is educated, is working towards understanding the humanity of others. You know, those experiences would weigh heavily on you and would be stressful Mm-hmm. And I I I think it's it's hard for someone like myself, who is a member of the the dominant culture, to kind of really understand that without, mm-hmm. like you say, having these
1: conversations. And and what you really emphasized just now, Robert, was the experience. It wasn't right. just a conversation. You know, right. and I like to frame the racial healing circle as an experience because yes. you are you know in a room with all these different people for a while you're you're definitely facilitated and and guided so that the conversation the rule of this work is do no harm you know right. so the dignity and the value of every person having the experience we make every effort to honor that right but but we do need these these immersive experiences in order to challenge ourselves i mean i didn't know anything about the indigenous Native American experience, although truthfully it's part of my heritage, although I didn't know that, uh, but or the experience of Latinx immigrants, you know, or Asian American Pacific Islanders or native Hawaiians. I didn't have that growing up until I had a chance to visit some of those cultures and experience a day or two or three and, and, and develop friendships and relationships with diverse people and read about their culture and their history, all of these things opened my eyes right. and made me less inclined to act on my own biases. And that's the work I think that we have to do on an interpersonal level, but don't I don't want people to think this is just interpersonal. I mean, we right. then have to develop the critical mass of public will to change policies and structures and resource distribution patterns that perpetuate injustice you know we have built so much of our taxation system our school funding system you know simply our access to opportunity has been driven by this this belief that some people deserve more than others and we're going to maintain that hierarchy and so we've got a lot of work to do to to not only repair and compensate for the damage the unpaid labor the land that was taken we also have to design new systems of opportunity that ultimately I think are gonna make us a stronger country.
0: Well, I, I was talking with an economist and he was sharing how, and this is so obvious, but it's not about cultures or any specific place a person's from, it's their opportunities that create their environment. So he was talking about in Europe, um, there's a, there a country of immigrants and they looked at recidivism or their their likelihood of repeating uh, a crime, going back to prison. And he and he said that if, if there's jobs, the 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 likelihood of reoffending is so much lower than if they don't have jobs. Therefore, saying that if you have opportunities, you're less inclined yeah. to 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 uh, commit crime, right? So whereas we we say things like oh, well, that's what's happening in in that culture or something. But then you need to look at, are they given the same opportunities as the dominant culture? Usually the answer is no,
1: right? The answer is no. And and bear in mind that here in the United States, we incarcerate more people than any other country. Uh, We have built an economic industry on incarceration. Right. Right. And then we have created all manner of barriers post-incarceration so that the person who, after they quote, have paid their debt to society, they don't have the opportunity structures to reintegrate into society. Well, uh, I worked on that issue a lot in my career uh, and we still haven't made the progress, although we've made some, you know, but there've been a lot of people championing that cause because of the racial disparities associated with that prison industrial complex. Yeah. You know, you've got overwhelmingly black and brown people caught up in that system and therefore um, more vulnerable. And we saw that a lot of the deaths due to COVID-19, the disparities, have been associated with people being in those systems where they were just literally incubators, if you will, for the pathology for the virus. So we got a lot of work to do. But uh, I remain optimistic and hopeful and inspired by people like yourself who are willing to take this journey and hopefully the work will accelerate over the next few years and we'll we'll build back better, as they say, after this pandemic, these simultaneous pandemics of economic uncertainty, the exposure of racial injustice and the virulence of this virus, COVID-19.
0: Well, I, I love what you said about how it's not just about destroying the house. It's not just about putting up new uh, new paint, but it's about looking at the structure and restrengthening strengthening it, retooling it yeah. and finding ways that we can work, you know, together to get to where we we need to be, because the reality is is that equity, it's gonna make us all so much healthier, I think.
1: Yep. Right? Well, it's going to make our economy healthier, yeah, and that's going to make us healthier, and us being healthier is going to stop the drain on our economy, the lion's right. share, of which is chronic disease. So it is, it is a circular investment that people have to recognize, you know, uh, but I think we will. And, and Robert, I've just, I've been honored to have been invited to be part of your effort in terms of your podcast. Thank As you, you know, I've got to get ready to get on another call. But Okay,
0: um, last question for you. Uh-huh. Um, in, in your pursuits, how do you stay positive? What do you do to stay positive?
1: <laughs> well, I have a two-year-old grandson. Okay. And he, he lights up my life. I look at him and every cell in my body just comes to life. And I smile. And I realize that the work I'm doing is helping to assure that he has equal opportunity, you know, as he grows. I'm also a deeply, I believe, spiritual person. Uh, and I believe that we have within us the, the creative ability to to generate goodness and love. And I have had that experience in my lifetime, and I've never, ever felt um, abandoned in that sense. You know, I believe I'm always connected to and with the creative power of the universe. And, and, and I just know that, you know, and I affirm that nature is a very strong healing force. And I get out into nature a few times every day. I live near a forest. A forest is part of my, my center here. And so I I respect and receive the energy from the forest and from the trees and that helps to center me and make me a more effective person, I think.
0: Awesome. You're spiritually resilient, and uh, I'm picking that up. So thank you so much, Dr. Gail Christopher. And uh, keep in touch. And have Absolutely.
1: And have a wonderful day. You do the same, and good luck with your podcast. I look okay. forward to listening to it. Thank All you. Right. Take thank care. you.
0: Once again, that was Dr. Gail Christopher sharing with us the, the wonderful work and the wonderful career that she's had in this vision for change. Um, I really love what she said about the goals of what they're after and they're achievable things. I really believe that. I think it really does come down to identifying that how we treat others, what we say about others, what we think about others, is a reflection of ourselves. I know that I've thought some pretty awful things about other people. And when I really stop to think about my thoughts, my judgments, I start to realize that Maybe those are things that I need to work on. And by being kind to other people, we will benefit from that. Kindness is not weakness. Kindness is, is true strength. I think being mean to people is really easy, right? Cutting people down. But raising people up, encouraging them, and seeing the good in them will allow us to see the good in ourselves. And I think that that's a step in the right direction. And not worrying about these global things that are taking place, but worrying what is it that I can do to make a difference? How can I show kindness to my neighbor, to a stranger, and to the world? So think about what you can do Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.